Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning and welcome. Welcome to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. I want to welcome everyone who's listening. Uh, today we're going to have a wonderful program at 9 o'clock. We ha- a lot of people don't know that the internet, this massive technology reality that is such a part of our lives now, was first introduced to the public by a black company. Network Solutions is a company that many of us, at least in my age, remember, was the only place you could get domain names. And Network Solutions was the first of all white or black companies to introduce the internet to the public. And the, the, one of the men who was involved in that as an executive uh, in charge of communications for the company during that time has written a book called Race for the Net, and he is going to come on as my guest. Mr. Albert White uh, will be on at 9 o'clock, and he will discuss the background of this amazing company and other Wisdom. I mean, he's he's an amazing uh, person with a lot of knowledge over the past 30 years. So stay tuned. At 9 o'clock, he will be on. Go to my website right now, if you'd like, lawtalkwithethelmitchell.com, and you will see the webpage that was created for this. You'll see a picture of Mr. Al White, and you'll have a link where you can purchase his book, Race for the Net. You can also get it on Amazon, but if you purchase it directly from his website, he's going to send you an autograph copy, you know, and that's special. It really is. So if you're a school teacher, if you are a parent, if you are a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, if you belong to a church, if you're part of an organization that wants people to know the truth about this amazing company, a black company at that, uh, Buy this book, have your school to buy the book, pass it out to to everyone, black or white, you know, because it's an important book. It really is. It's it's huge. It's and and we need to know this. We really need to know this. So I'm gonna bring on Mr. Al White at nine o'clock. That means that if you have questions about wills, trusts, power of attorneys, deeds, the things that we usually talk about, I would like for you to Call me now at 1-800-450-7876 while during the first part of the program. So if you've been saving up your questions or for any reason was not able to get in last week, call early. All right, call early. Call now at 1-800-450-7876. And I will, as every week, do my best to educate and inform you and explain uh, to you how things work as far as the law is concerned, particularly with reference to deeds, power of attorneys, wills, probate, trust, anything like that. Okay, so give me a call now, and I'll be glad to do my best to answer your questions. This program is brought to you by my law office, Wills and Trust, LLC, where the only kind of work we do is prepare wills, power of attorneys, advanced medical directives, trusts. We assist people in administering estates and in administering trusts. So give us a call at 
240-638-2828. That's 240-638-2828. We will call you back. We are working remotely, but we definitely do video conferences. We do audio conferences. We prepare documents, and we get them signed. So give us a call because we continue to work hard, but we are getting it done, and this is important stuff, okay? So law is powerful. It can help you or it can hurt you. It impacts everything that you do. What you don't know can hurt you. What you do know empowers you. It makes a huge difference. This part of the law that helps you to create and preserve your assets and pass them on in the most tax-efficient way, in the most monetarily efficient way, securely, helps to ensure that the next generation, your beneficiaries, the next generation, whether it is your immediate family, whether it is your um, churches, your organizations, it helps them to survive. And everybody has the opportunity to do this if you use the law, but you've got to use it. You've got to put this stuff in writing, and it has got to be properly executed and signed. And somebody's got to know where the originals are because that's what the courts are looking for, the original documents. So if you did a will 20 years ago and you don't know where it is, do another will. Just do another will. That's all you have to do. You can always do another will, okay? So um, please do follow up on this. It's important. Make sure your mother, your grandmother, your father, your grandfather, make sure they have wills. Don't let anybody get away with saying it doesn't matter. It matters hugely. It matters hugely. Your spouse does not automatically get everything. Your children can fight if you haven't made a clear written declaration of what you want in a legally enforceable way. It's not enough just to write it down on a piece of paper. It really isn't. This is important stuff. So please do do that. If you have questions, like I said before, call me now while I'm on the air at 1-800-450-7876 because we'll have a guest on at nine o'clock and he's got some really powerful and useful information to share with us, okay? Um, I thought today I would, since I didn't have a lot of time uh, to specifically focus on this, I wanted to revisit the reason why we tell you not to just put your children's name, and by that I mean adult children, on your deed, or not to just give them your house by deed, okay, while you are alive, unless you have some other reason for doing so. Don't do it just for the purpose of avoiding probate, okay? Don't do it just for the purpose of not having to go to a lawyer and do a will. You think you can get away with it that way, okay? The problem is, that a lot of people don't realize is that the tax you're giving your child a huge tax burden. Okay, you're giving your child or anybody during your lifetime 
when you gift property to someone, you gift them your basis. And what that means is this, because a lot of people don't know this or they just ignore it. They're more focused on, you know, I I don't want to be bothered with a lawyer. I don't want to have a will. I shouldn't have to do all that. I'm just going to give you my house. We'll go get a quick claim deed or some kind of deed, and I'm just going to, you know, people call the term, put your name on my deed. Okay. Well, number one, when you do that, let's say, as as is very common around here, because I have estates with property, when you put somebody's name on your deed, let's say you bought your house for $35,000, all right? But now it's worth $400,000. Let's make it easier. You bought it for $50,000. But now it's worth $400,000. Because everything in the metropolitan area here in Washington, D.C., and in many other cities, has increased in value tremendously. And so your children are looking at this, and they're like, wow, I want to have this. I can use this better. And let's just do something simple and put your name on the deed. Well, when you do that, you just gave your child your $50,000 basis. And although it might not seem like a big thing, when your child, and let's say you do it, deed is recorded, you die, your child owns the house, he or she lives in it, or he or she decides, I'm just going to sell mama and daddy's house because I can get $400,000 for it and I can take that $400,000 and use it somewhere else. Well, guess what? They now have to pay capital gains tax on $350,000. And if that tax is 20%, that is $70,000 in taxes that they would not have had to pay if instead of putting your name on the deed while you're alive, they just waited until you died and got the house, okay? They can get the house through a transfer on death deed. They can get the house through your will. They can get the house through your trust, you know. But in the law, you get what's called a step-up in basis when somebody gives you property after they die. If you give property while you're alive, you are gifting your basis. And let me explain it a little bit differently if I can. In the United States, when your money is used to make money, it's called an investment. The money that you use, like the money that you, the $50,000 that you use to buy your house was an investment. It's considered capital, okay? Now, we're accustomed to thinking of capital in terms of a million dollars, two million dollars. We're accustomed to thinking of capital in terms of business. But in point of fact, when you own a home or when you buy a home, you are investing your capital in the purchase of that home. If that home increases in value, as every home around at least the District of Columbia has increased in value for any number of reasons, that is called appreciation. 
So your $50,000 of capital is now worth $400,000. It's the same thing as if you had put that $50,000 in the stock market, and 20 years later, that $50,000 had grown into $400,000. That's called capital appreciation. Now, when you sell your home or when you sell your stocks, you gain the appreciation from that capital investment. And at that point, Uncle Sam has his hands out and he says, ah, you've got $350,000 from that $50,000 investment. And so I want taxes from it. Okay? That's called a capital gains tax. That's called a capital gains tax. So the $50,000 that you use to buy your home grew into $400,000. And when you sell that home, you've got $350,000 increased, and the government wants a tax from that. Now, when you gift your home during your lifetime to your child, your niece, your nephew, to anyone, you gifted them your basis because your $50,000 was your basis in that home. When you bought it for $50,000, Accounting-wise, that was considered your basis. That was the amount of capital that you invested. And when that capital increased to three hundred, I mean, to four hundred thousand dollars, it appreciated to three hundred by three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. When you gift your property to anybody, you gift them your basis. So let's say Mr. John Smith owns a home. And he has a son, we'll keep it simple, Mr. John Smith Jr. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to bother with no lawyer. I'm just going to give your give this house to you now before I die, and then I don't have to worry about it. You got it. John Jr. says, fine. Thank you, Dad. Uh, thank you for the house. Of course, I'm going to let you live in it for the rest of your life, you know, because remember, it's now John Jr.'s house when you put his name on it. Um But John Jr. just got a $400,000 house for $50,000. And so Mr. John Smith dies. John Jr. says, ah, I can sell the house. I I got my own house already anyway. So now I can get, you know, $400,000 for daddy's house. Guess what? Yes, he can do that. But he's going to pay $70,000, you know, approximately capital gains out of that $400,000. And I have quite a few clients who have come to me with that problem, you know, and, and realtors don't tell you this. Realtors don't tell you that, oh, guess what? There's a ba-. They don't even ask you what the basis is. Now, if you wait until you're, the person who's giving you that house dies and then you get it, then you get it, either through probate with their will, through a trust, uh, through a transfer on death deed. In other words, the title doesn't really vest in you. 
I think I used that term before, doesn't invest in you until after their death. There is a very important part of the tax law that says you get a step up in basis to the value of the home when the person died. So now, when the person dies, you get an appraisal just for tax reasons. So now, Mr. John Smith Jr., instead of getting it when daddy gave it to him as a deed, he got it from a will, or he got it from a trust, or he got it from a transfer on death deed, or uh, enhanced life estate deed in Maryland, and does the appraisal, house is worth $400,000, goes out, he sells the house for $400,000, and there is no capital gains tax. That entire $400,000 that he got from the sale of the house, he can put in his pocket and do whatever he wants to do with it. And he does it, although he has to report it, of course, there is no capital gains tax on it. That is a huge thing that a lot of people don't know. And people come to me and say, why is that? It wasn't like that years ago. I got my mom and daddy's house in Virginia and Louisiana and Texas and wherever. And we never had to be bothered with that. Well, guess what? The house didn't appreciate so much. You know, my mother's house may have been worth $30,000 the entire time she was alive, you know? So it wasn't as if we were getting a huge increase in the value between when she bought it and when she died or when she sold it. So there was no appreciation for for the government to tax. So that's just something that com- it keeps coming up and coming up in, in, in my consultations with my clients. And so I thought I would, you know, go back and revisit that again because I want to caution anyone who's considering doing it to be careful. I'm not saying you should never do it. There may be instances when you just want to do it. Uh, you should but consult with a lawyer ahead of time, please, uh, or a good accountant. Because you might have good reasons for why you want to do it, okay? Just know that there is a potential cost later on. And be careful when you say, I'm just going to live in the house. It's not a problem. I don't plan on selling it or whatever. And that's all well and good. It's just that, you know, if the house goes from a value of 400000 to a value of $1 million, you're still going to pay capital gains on the difference between 50000 and $1 million later on. And that's taxes that you probably could have avoided and gotten what you wanted, i.e. the house anyway. So just be aware. One of the things about people who are wealthy is that they're very knowledgeable or they consult with people who are knowledgeable about the tax consequences of their actions. And so as you acquire property, as you acquire money, as you acquire um, assets, don't hesitate In fact, please do consult with tax people. Get good tax advice. Get good legal advice. It's important for you, and it's important for the legacy that you're going to leave. That kind of advice can make the difference between a wealthy 
next generation and a not so wealthy next generation. Okay, it does make a difference. You're listening to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. I'm your host, Attorney Ethel Mitchell. Each week here on Law Talk, we bring you information that you need to know. You need to know these things. Okay, everybody needs to have kind of basic information. You know, at least to know enough to know what you don't know. That's important. I always say that. I know what I know, but I also know there's a lot of things I don't know. So this is basic foundational information that I think every adult needs to have and needs to know. Um, Give us a call at 240-638-2828, 240-638-2828, and we'll be glad to do a consultation with you and prepare your estate documents as you need. Um, Everybody needs to have a last will and testament. Everybody needs to have three documents, a will, a power of attorney, advanced medical directives, and perhaps a trust. Not everybody needs a trust, but perhaps a trust. So those are three major documents. If you don't have them, call us and get it or call a lawyer somewhere where you live and get these things done. A will, a power of attorney, an advanced medical directive. They are really, really important. You need to have a copy of your deed, okay? You need to have a copy of your deed. You are. You need to know where your property is. Uh, you need to know whose name is on your property. Uh, you really do. That's important. Uh, you need to be able to, you know, say, all right, if you are not um, on the deed, how do you get it on the deed? You know, that's important to know. That's important to know. Um, um, and and get a lawyer to help you with. Um, get a lawyer to help you with it. You know, that's important. Call us, like I said. Um, at 240-638-2828. Okay. Uh, I really hope that people will follow up and make sure that these things are done. And then when you do it, you can call. uh, You can tell people where the documents are. That's another issue. Uh, that's another big issue. People do, they'll tell people, I did a will. I had a client who came in and said, his aunt told him, baby, I went to the lawyer, I did the will, I made sure that you were going to get this house and uh, so you don't have to worry about it. And he was uncomfortable about asking her where the will was. He didn't want to be too forward. You know, he didn't want to act greedy or sound greedy or anything, you know, but you know, it took us a year or so to be able to get him appointed as personal representative uh, because without the will, thank God we had a copy of the will because he wouldn't have gotten it at all. But at least we had a copy of the will. Um, And even with a copy of the will, we had to go through standard probate, which takes forever in D.C. And we finally got it. But, oh, my God, what a hassle it was. So make sure when you do a will, you, whoever you've named as a personal representative, at the very least, 
knows where and can get to the original will, not a copy, the original will. Now, you can still always change your will. And if you've given somebody a copy, tell them that's no longer good. But you need to be able to tell people where the will is, if it's in a safety deposit box, which it doesn't have to be, by the way, give them a key or at least let them know what the address of the bank is, the number on the box, and put their name on the box and tell them where the key is because they will lock that box down when you die unless their name is on the box and unless you have a key. If you don't, we got to go to court. We got to get somebody to drill the box. We got to, you know, do all kinds of unnecessary difficulties. We're trying to make this as easy and simple as possible. We all going to get out of here one of these days and we leaving all our stuff here. So please take the time to make sure that your affairs are in order. It's very important. You're listening to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. I'm your host, Attorney Ethel Mitchell. Uh, Call me at 240-638-2828, and we will schedule a consultation. Usually I send you a client information form. If it's a probate, we have a probate information form so that when we, and you send that back, and when we talk, I can give you specific information. It's important. Uh, You owe it to yourself. You owe it to your spouse, your significant other. You owe it to your children. And you owe it just to yourself for peace of mind. For peace of mind, it's important, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about my guest. Mr. Albert White has over 30 years of business and finance experience. He graduated from the University of Denver and Columbia Business School. He worked with J.P. Morgan and with Bankers Trust, later purchased by Deutsche Bank. He's been the senior consultant to Safeguard Scientific, a a publicly owned venture capital company. He's been CEO of two energy companies and senior manager for numerous technology companies. He's also been the advisor to some of the most successful CEOs in the country and a visionary in identifying market niche. Albert, welcome to Law Welcome back to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. You've been on before. Right. Good morning, Ethel. How are you? Good. It's good to be back. It's very good to be back. And as always, you've got some really exciting news and information to share with us. First tell yeah, us I guess a little right. when I first right, when I was first on your show, I hadn't finished the book and um I uh, released a book um, in June of uh, last year, uh, Race for the Net. And um, so I'm very pleased with the reception the book has received as as well as the information that people have gained from the book about the Internet as well as other things. Well, tell us a little about some of the business people that you have worked with, that you have advised. I mean, just to give us a little background, yeah. Yeah, so um, right after I left banking in about um, 19, I guess 1980, uh, one of my first clients was the late Percy Sutton, who uh, 
was the former borough president of uh, Manhattan, but later became the owner of um, the largest African-American radio station, chain of radio stations in the United States. And in fact, Kathy Hughes used to work with Percy in the early days. And um, okay. when she and I talked, talk, we used to talk about Percy and and um, how he built that um, empire, uh, as well as he was the he was on the board and control controlling ownership of the Apollo Theater. A lot of people don't even know that. So, okay. so he hired me to uh, work with him because he wanted to build a um, a record producing facility in Nigeria. Uh, to produce records, and this is before wow. the And uh, uh-huh. my background in international finance, he said, you know, Al, why don't you come and work with me and help me do this project? And um, so I raised um, about $12.5 million for, for the project um, from the Exxon Bank of the United States. The project never went to the next level because we had a, a difficult time raising raising equity capital for the project. So uh-huh. um, we went on for that. But I gradually okay. had a close relationship with Percy and worked with him on the, the marketing of WBLS and some of his other radio stations. Um, uh-huh. He used to invite me to come and, and sit at some of the uh, filmings of some of the commercials. And we talked about business a lot. He was a big influence on me, Ethel. Um, Percy was uh, a person who was uh, – uh, enormous, you know, enormous um, presence in New York during that period of time, and I, okay. you know, I felt honored to be working with him, as well as Reggie Lewis was re- working with us too. So uh, yeah, Reggie, yeah, Reggie and I worked for Percy together, as well as Wally Ford, and uh, Wally Ford is a, an attorney in New York, and um, so we all three of us worked for Percy at the same time. He had his own venture capital firm at the time, and we were advising him. Tell tell my audience a little about Reggie Lewis, because I knew Reggie too, but what is so outstanding? I, I love anybody that wants to know about business needs to read his book as well. Why should right. white guys have all the fun? That's a great business book. Why should white guys have all the fun? If anybody's listening, that's another great business book to read. Um, what did yeah, Reggie do that was so outstanding? Yeah, Reggie was an exceptional person. He was a, a, a graduate of uh, Harvard Law um, and Morgan State. And um, he, uh, when we worked for Percy, uh, Reggie always had interesting um, things to say as well as an imaginative business uh, ideas. And right, but not just when he worked for Percy. What I, what I would like you to say is, what com- what massive deal did Reggie do on his own? Once he, well, I don't know if he was still with well, Percy, but that was a massive, the biggest in history that Reginald right. did. Right, he did the Beatrice Food deal, which um, was the largest food distribution company at the time in Europe and everywhere. Uh, Michael Milken, who at the time had basically um, uh, been accused of uh, manipulating the marketplace. Uh, thought it may be a good idea to bring to bring Reggie in to own one of his companies, and um, so Reggie was offered the opportunity to own Beatrice. He they, they structured the deal, um, and it went from 
Reggie being a friend of the Milken family to being the owner of, of Beatrice Foods. And, um, that was huge. That was that was right. the largest one before he passed. That was a lot. Yeah. 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 So then he then he owned a patent company and um that he had bought and he was um um basically uh prior to Beatrice and he was working on that for, for some period of time. Um, right. And I remember he gave history. he gave Harvard University the largest gift they had ever had. In his right. in their history too. He was amazing. Right, he was exactly. and he was from Baltimore. He was right he was from Baltimore, Maryland. That's right. Right. Now, right, right. Let's let's talk a little about network solutions because that's the focus of your book, which I hope will not be your last book, but uh that's the focus of race for the net. And tell my audience what that's all about. What was network solutions? How was it created? And by whom and what did it do? So so um, the um, uh, j- just a little precursor to that is that Emmett McHenry, uh, the CEO of Network Solutions, he and I were um, students at the University of Denver. He, I, he was a student at the University of Denver, and I was a, um, a basketball uh, recruiter, recruit coming from Brooklyn, and that's how we met. He eventually became the CEO of Network Solutions. And um, we had a relationship through college and after college. And um, Emmett is originally from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, Mm -hmm. uh, so when he left college and uh, went to the Marines and I left and went to business school, we met up again and we talked about the possibility of uh, forming a business. I had already um, started my own company so he had um, uh, started Network Solutions with three partners. It was a diverse group. Uh, the other African-American was Tyrone Grisby, who um, uh, he met while up in Connecticut at a conference. And mm-hmm. the two, non, two non-minority partners were um, Ed Peters and Gary Desler, who were both engineers. So they mm-hmm. came together and put Network Solutions um in place in 1979, and um, the African-Americans owned a little more than 65% of the company, and the, the minority owners owned about 35%. So Okay. And they were, they were based right here in Herndon. Was, is that correct? Right, exactly. Herndon, Virginia. They first, first, right. They were first burst in Tyson's Corner, and then they moved to Herndon, uh, Huntmar Park, and... Um, all of them, uh, except for Tyrone, had technical backgrounds. Even Emmett had worked for IBM in their mainframe area. And the other two okay. had been working in the federal government for the Department of Labor. So uh, they all had the capability of, um, of developing contracts as well as executing on contracts. So, Al, continue to, to describe for us the how Network Solutions became such a technological powerhouse that it was selected to do this, please. Yeah, so, so uh, Ethel, one, one of the things I want the audience to, to, to know is that the network solutions that exist today that gives out Internet addresses, this is the same network solutions. Um, okay. And, and it was established by this um, uh, uh, black company back in uh, 1979. So the company started developing technology, telecom, 
as well as IT technology in the early days of the mainframe and the the, the um, desktop computers. And um, one of the one of the major acquisitions was to buy a software uh, that integrated mainframes with desktops. And at the time, um, that was a major problem for even IBM. So they started mm-hmm. developing that, and they started to win contracts down at the Johnson Space Center, at the Department of Labor. Eventually, the company grew to about 48 million with about 400 over 400 employees with about eight offices throughout the United States. And they were doing work for uh, a lot of federal agencies, but also they were doing work in the commercial space for commercial banks, for um, the old nation's bank that turned into Bank of America, where they were building the back office security for the bank. Um, they were, um, they did a, a contract in Contra Costa County, building a secure system for Contra Costa County in California for them to manage um, uh, their data and manage other things. So they gradually became known as the go-to company, even though they were a small company compared to some of the big companies for integration and for open systems. So, um, and then in 2000, um, and, and I'll just mention this point. I came to the company in 1989 um, as a consultant, but in, um, ni- in about um 1990, um, Network Solutions bid on a contract with AT&T to manage the federal government's telecommunications and data system for the federal government. And they won that contract, and uh, that contract was the largest contract ever awarded by AT&T to a minority firm. And it was uh, announced um, in the Wall Street Journal and a lot of the, the financial journals. And that was the thing that really... Um, escalated the image of network solutions uh, being a major player in the te- telecommunications space. Uh, that contract wow. um, was a um, for AT&T was a fifty billion dollar contract, but uh, Network Solutions was responsible for uh, providing internet uh, connectivity for all of the federal agencies outside of Washington D.C. and, and overseas, and um, wow. that gave it more credibility going forward. Uh, so That's we had awesome. a great team of, of, of workers, and, and it was an integrated, integrated company with beyond the owners, we, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the company were minority engineers and developers. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so, 70 percent was probably white, but it was still a minority-owned yeah. company. Yeah. Okay. Right, exactly. Very good. The ownership. But, but um, there was still a shortage of, of African-Americans and minority in technology back then. So, um, uh-huh. but we were, we were like the go-to company. A lot of a lot of people who wanted to work for a minority-owned technology company, um, as I mentioned in my book, uh, we used to get hundreds of resumes every week from people wanting to come and work for Network Solutions during that time. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, so yeah. So, so go the on. Company grew. Uh-huh. Okay, that's all. I'm sorry. No, go on. And and how did it come to be? So now they're working for the government. It's massive. It's huge. How did they get to the place where they were introducing or they were asked to introduce it to the public? Because that's when the Internet just exploded, from what I understand, outside of government. Yeah. Right. How did that happen? Exactly. Exactly. So for for those that don't know, the the Internet is a little bit over 50 years old. It was initially 
um, established in 1969 um, when the first link between the University of California uh, on two of their campuses sent messages back and forth. Then uh, for, the, for the first 25 years, the technology was in development around the world. Okay. And then we got the World Wide Web that was um, attached to the Internet. And then in 19, the early 90s, 91, 92, um, it was decided by the federal government that they wanted to allow other people to use the Internet. Up until that point, uh, the federal government used the Internet for uh, educational institutions, laboratories, and for the Defense Department. Now, the Defense Department was, was the, um, the major uh, promoter of the Internet and was, and was the uh, initial idea of the Internet came from the Defense Department. The Defense Department mm-hmm. basically initiated um, the building of the Internet to solve a communications problem in case there was a nuclear war or a major disaster. And, okay. and from that, okay. they took it to the college campuses and to some of the, 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 the technology people. And they said, okay, we need this network that will provide communications to the world if we have a disaster. And um, ironically today, um, the Internet is functioning as that communications for the pandemic. So um, okay. um, it's interesting after, after 50 years that we came to this point that we have a pandemic to demonstrate the power of the Internet. So, so after they decided they wanted to do that, and this is like in the early 90s, 91, 92, um, Al Gore, who um, was instrumental in promoting the growth of the Internet while he was a senator, um, asked that the Internet now be open to the world. And then by the time that he became vice president uh, with uh, President Clinton, they had developed a program for um, – uh, global marketing of the internet worldwide, but they still didn't have anybody that could that could implement the the platform so it could be introduced to the world. So uh, the National Science Foundation, which basically managed the education and laboratory side of the internet platform, had put in an RFP out and asked to uh, identify a company that would be able to develop a global platform for the internet. So it could be used by anybody in the world. And Network Solutions was the only bidder on that contract uh, because the requirements of the contract is you had to have prior experience in building um, Internet types of networks. And we were one of the only companies in the world that had that capability since we had built wow. for the Department of Defense. So that's how, that's that how awesome. we won the contract is that Network Solutions, African-American company, was um, uh, blessed to have uh, engineers and capability to basically go out and provide a platform for the Internet to the world. What that means for those listeners is the dot-com address, we were the first to issue dot-com addresses back in 1993 to uh, companies and businesses outside the United States. That's amazing. Amazon got their their internet address from us. You know, all the big companies, and I'm sure they don't know there was an African American firm that that, uh, provided internet addresses to some of the largest corporations in America from 1993 to 1995. And we were giving the addresses away for free, Ethel. So, um, this was a critical part of the situation. So, it made it difficult. That is awesome. 
That is awesome. We're going to have to go to break in a moment, but I do want you to give out the name of your book that recites all of this and gives more background and the website where people can get it at a very reasonable price. It's not a very long book. It's an easy read, and I want to encourage everybody to get out and get it, and all the school teachers and librarians and everybody needs to have this book in their schools and in their libraries. So please give us the name of the book and the website. Yeah, it's it's race R A C E four F O R the T H E net N E T and it's www.racefornet.com and you can order um soft cover, hard cover, but it's the only place you can get autographed books. So mm-hmm. um, I've been autographing a lot of books uh, because a lot of people want to get books for their children and their family members and as a keepsake of the history of the Internet. This is the only book, uh, I need to make mention of this, this is the only book that has been written that actually gives the complete history of the Internet. And the reason that it's the complete history is because our participation as the uh, as the promoter and developer of the overseas market for the Internet is in the book that it hasn't been written in history before. So I just wanted wow. you to know that that uh, very few people know about the story of Network Solutions and how they introduced the Internet to the world. That's awesome. That is really awesome. We need to know these things. And when we come back, there's some other major things that black people have done in the world and in the country that they 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 never get credit for. We never we never know these things. Okay, it's a black owned company, and uh, right. that had lots of engineers because you all were creating technology. This wasn't just a done deal. You all had to solve the problems, as I understand, and actually create right. stuff to make this happen. Exactly. That, exactly. So yeah, yeah net, network solutions, and I've worked for a lot of technology companies. And I would say that Network Solutions, uh, in the time I was there, I felt it was one of the greatest companies I had worked for because of mm-hmm. the, brilliant, the brilliant people and engineers. And just we had, we had such a, a great uh, team of engineers and developers. And um, it was all about helping the customer in the federal marketplace space. And there was no question, you know, when we could, you know, hire uh, African Americans or minorities, we would hire them. So, um, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so we felt felt proud of that. So, Ethel, the, the, yeah. the, the when I wrote the book, I wrote the book to give the history of Network Solutions, but I wanted to really provide more so one of my, you know, thirty years of experience, but also to provide some ideas on industries that African Americans should be looking at. And at the time okay. I, I wrote the book, I was looking at the displacement of African-Americans because of technology, because of robotics and, and, and mechanizations. And I felt that since there were um, a lot of people in our community in the service industry, as the technology in uh, um, the digital technology progressed, people would be displaced and we would be the first group of people to be displaced. So, um, what I did was put in the book some industries and areas that I thought African Americans should look at uh, going forward. To basically, what, what, what are some of those? Growth. What are 
what are some of those industries, if you don't mind sharing some of that with us? Yeah, so, so yeah, so the, the, first, the first thing, and I said throughout the book, Race for the Net, uh, throughout the book, digital technology is exploding. And 25 years ago, when I was out there also saying that the Internet and digital technology was going to be big, uh, I was trying to convince our community that um, the whole structure of marketing and sales was going to change. And um, so, you know, over the last 25 years, we see what's happened to malls. I just read in the newspaper today about Sears closing down, a lot more uh, buildings and stuff. But back then, we knew that there was going to be a restructuring because the technology allowed people to sell their product online uh, without having to go to a mall and for people to basically buy products from their home or their office. So digital technology, it's still very strong. Um, you know, you have Google out there. You have um, Alibaba out there who are basically helping small businesses and, and medium-sized companies sell their products overseas. Just think about it. There are 4.2 billion people who basically have access to the Internet, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a structure which allows you to reach those people by all you have to do is uh, get on the Internet and go and market directly to them. And, um, they're, they're, it's, you know, there's, there's no color discrimination because nobody knows who you are on the Internet. Um, right, so that's the biggest right. Thing, and I'm still pumping that. They got young people out there who have become millionaires just pumping products and, and services on, on, on the Internet and the digital stuff. The other area that I do talk about uh, are some of the things that the Biden administration is talking about already is this whole area of infrastructure. So infrastructure, the needs for infrastructure development in our country is somewhere about $4.5 trillion. And a portion of that is a segment of the development in our country called uh, um, opening up the digital divide. So one of the problems we had when in the early years of the Internet is that we were real concerned that the Internet wouldn't come into our community. And in 25 years, we've had some progress, but um, we still now have a major problem because most of the schooling today, Ethel, is done at home, and it's done if you have a computer and if you have Internet connection. So uh, 16 million people around the United States do not have Internet connection, nor do they have broadband connection, so it's a hindrance. So there's going to be a lot of money. There's about $40 billion to be spent in the area of um, helping uh, close the digital divide and providing internet connections in rural and urban areas. The um, okay. third area is in, is in the disaster area. Uh, disasters are going to be with us for a while. We're always going to have fires and we're always going to have floods. And I used to work for a disaster company and they were always busy. And I don't see enough of, of African-American firms in that area. And I think that there needs to be more firms in that area from our community that can work on some of these problems that are existing. Now we have the problem of, of contamination of the water and, and other things that uh, disasters bring. So that, that's been a big area. The, the biggest Absolutely. area, which I never expected to be as large as I expected to, to become, is really health care. Health care, if you look at it, before COVID was having problems just servicing the, the, the population because we were having an explosion within the baby boomer population, which are about 70, 70 million baby boomers out there who 
are now seeking mm-hmm. help in their homes and, and other places. But now, with mm-hmm. COVID, it's going to increase the size and the demand for people getting medical treatment and help enormously. It's, I, I would mm-hmm. say this is most likely going to be another five to six million people who will have some sort of, of, of problems because they had COVID, and the hospitals and medical treatment is going to be critical. And so mm-hmm. we're most likely going to be expanding in that area, building building hospitals. If you remember a few years ago, uh, um, after we were tearing down hospitals, we were closing hospitals, we can't yeah. afford to do that anymore because yeah. we don't have enough hospital beds. And especially mm-hmm. after this is over, we're not going back to normal medical. We're going back to explosive period of time. So uh, those are some of the areas. Uh, obviously, the whole area of teaching online is going to be huge. Um, and, I, and I say to teachers out there, yes, you know, you may be fighting the fact that you're having to learn how to teach online, but that's the, the wave of the future. And, you yeah. know, to, to yeah. learn Blackboard and some of these other technologies, uh, because that it's, it's making it easier for the schools as well as reducing their costs. Um, and so it's an opportunity to make a lot of money. There's an, I, yeah. I, I read about a Japanese firm, it, I don't know, well, a teacher who charges private, uh, you know, individual families to basically be a tutor for their children, but they do it in a classroom-like setting. And they mm-hmm. literally make over a million dollars because they charge each family to be in their classroom, and they make sure that the children really know math and science and the stuff that they need to know to pass these different tests. And families will pay for that. They pay exactly. big too. And, you and, know, and, 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 I got, right. And, and I have a personal situation. My wife teaches Spanish online, and most of her, right. her clients are seniors at senior citizen homes. Oh, that, isn't so, that interesting? And she's been doubling the size of the class. Yes, yes. That's I think. Wow, that's an opportunity for teachers, who, right, people exactly. who are teachers right now, to make some extra money because they don't make enough money anyway. You know, right? That's, exactly. that's a you know, yeah, yeah. I think everybody yeah. ought to have some kind of online presence. Really, if you want to make some money, it's great. You can do it right from no, your own exactly. home. It, and and the other the other thing going back to the digital the the the, the fact that these stores are closing means that their products that they were selling that somebody's going to produce and sell online you know yeah. so what we yeah. should be looking at are what are those products that we can get produced and manufacture and sell them online you know coats and, yeah. and dresses and all sorts of things um, sorts can be done things. you know from your home or from your, you know, your office or basement or something. But yeah, that's, that's, that's something we should be thinking about. So um, my, my email address um, is Al White, A-L-W-H-I-T-E at race for the net.com. So you can email me there. And for those mm-hmm. people who would like to order the book, uh, autograph copies of the book, um, or on their autograph copies, they can go to www.racefortheNet.com and order the book online, and we'll get it to you right away. Uh, and you can pay for it online, but, uh, obviously. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's that, that's where people can get to me. I, I think what I'd like to um, just mention a couple of points um, that I mentioned in the book about families um, basically sitting down and talking about strategy. 
and start talking about the children and what needs to happen, especially now during this period of the pandemic. I think there needs to be more internal discussions among family members on what's our strategy. What, what are we, what are our kids going to be doing? What are they looking to do in the future as it relates to college, as it relates to just the whole learning experience, because the learning experience has changed a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I'm, I'm real concerned about um, young men and young women spending so much time gaming um, um, on their, their computers or, or, their, uh, or their pads and stuff. Um, gaming is entertainment. It's not really learning. And, you know, um, I'm sure when you get ready for college and you put down well, what's your experience, you're going to say gaming, that they're going to let you into a, a university or a college because you're an expert in gaming. Maybe there are a couple of positions that will allow that, but the majority of people are not going to respect the, f- the fact that you spent your time gaming during the pandemic. And that's going to be a question a lot of colleges and a lot of educational institutions are going to ask um, of young people is, what did you do during the pandemic to improve yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, did you mm-hmm. learn a language? Did you learn a skill? And that's going to give them um, uh, a means of understanding what, you know, your strengths are, as well as does this person have really what it takes to stay in college and, and get to the next level? So I think that mm-hmm. uh, families need to to work on that with their children, some sort of a plan going forward. Uh, it wasn't needed in the past, but now since we have the pandemic and we have the sheltering in place, I think there's a lot of discussion that needs to take place about the future and how we get through this next period. Okay. Um, and, and also other countries are educating their people to do the kind of skills that are needed. And uh, our young people have to have those skills themselves. I don't believe everybody needs to have to go to college, but you got to have a skill that somebody's going to pay you for. Yeah. So you got to have a skill that somebody's going to pay you for and you, and you have to be able to make money. I mean, I, I was very clear with my children. Yeah, I'll educate you, but you got to take care of yourself. And that's a decision. I, I I was serious, okay. So, but I think every a lot of parents don't make that clear to their children, and so their children kind of grow up thinking, well, daddy will always take care of me. So, I think it's important for them to understand. No, no, that's not how the world works. I'll feed right. you while you can't feed yourself, but afterwards you got to go get your own food, you know, and you eat what you kill, as they used to say. Right. right, right. Um, you're right, you, right. You, made, you made an excellent point about college. I think that um, when they look at the experts are looking at the labor market in the future, they're not looking at the labor market from the standpoint of how many college degree people. They're looking at the experience of the people being able to uh, fix a computer or cybersecurity, mm-hmm. that's what they're looking at. And that and a lot of that. Yeah. What can you do? Right, exactly. What can you do for me? And then what the, can you do the for me days, that's worth me paying you for? That's right, worth exactly, me paying you exactly, for. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Also, yeah. Right. Also, I think that the thing that you, that you brought up about college is it's like an investment. Okay, you got to make a decision on do I want to spend sixty or $70,000 for a particular skill and have to pay that loan off for the rest of my life and not get the return. So mm-hmm. uh, and, and kids need to look at that. Families need to look at that. Um, yeah. Yes, it's good, it's good to have a college education if you can afford to have a college education, but there are trade schools 
and there are other areas where you can gain experience. One of the biggest growth markets right now is home repair. What they found is is that with so many people at home, they're using their appliances more, and they don't have enough repair people. They don't have yeah. to go repair wash machines or refrigerators or stoves. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It was almost like the shortage we had in plumbers and electricians, and that's even growing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so there are some areas that, you know, young people should look at if, you know, if they have the dexterity uh, in those areas and, and, and focus on that and then look at that going forward. So I think the whole aspect of having a college education is going to change over the next few years. And I think we'll be looking right. for people who have experience. Well, but I think we want to end on a note that says, if you want to be an engineer or if you want to have a big business around technology, Network Solutions is an example that you need to know about. And it's an example of a black company that did it. It's been done. You don't have to reinvent the, the wheel. You can improve on it. You can make it better. You can certainly make the money that's involved in it with with guidance and, you know, capital and so on like that. But uh, I I really want my audience to buy your book and to read it thoroughly because it's not – it is – although it's primarily the story of a black company that was outstanding and and made such a huge contribution to the world – it is also full of great ideas that people should know, especially young people, young people who may be out of college right now because of COVID. This is a great book for you to read because you, you need to know, you know, sometimes when somebody's already walked the path, it's easier for you to make your steps along the same way. So race for the net, go to the website, buy the book. And if you have questions or you want to, you know, pass something by Mr. White, send him an email. Give out your email yeah. one more time, Al, please, and your website. Yeah, it's Al White, A-L-W-H-I-T-E, at raceforthenet.com. So you can email me there, and um, I'll, I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can, um, yeah. answer any questions you have. Um the other thing I was saying to 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 Ethel was um, for people who are inventors or who have new ideas, you keep yes. you know, plugging along with that because new ideas and inventions are being developed every single day. And I've been around yes. a lot of inventors who tinkered on things and then became multimillionaires. So uh, yeah, and you've counseled many of them. So you can get in touch with Mr. White about that too. Okay. (laughs) And he's going to introduce me to a group of, uh, that, that is of engineers and I'm going to try and get them on the radio as well. Okay. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you for listening and please, you know, stay safe, stay healthy, please. Our community, we need to take the vaccine. We need to take it. You know, yeah, and um, we don't need to question it. This is not a question. This is we're dying. We're dying at enormous rates, and that's my concern. Wow. Thank you, Al. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. Tune in next week, and we will have another good program for you. And I'm going to try and post the audio of this program as soon as possible. 
so you can go on the website to listen to it as well. Have a good day, and as Mr. White said, stay safe and stay healthy. Some people.